Um, over the last few weeks, we've been doing the series Calibrate, um, and we've just been looking at ways that we can calibrate or adjust ourselves, um, adjust ourselves and how we are within the church, adjust ourselves how we are individually or with others. And Jesus provided the revelation to John, um, and John then reflected that in the book of Revelation um, itself. And the start of the book of Revelation, chapter 1, really provides an introduction to the uh, messages to the churches, uh, which are portrayed more in um, chapters 2 and 3 in the bespoke letters. So there were seven letters dictated to the seven churches in Revelations. And over the last three weeks, we've had verses. We've had uh, Rob Brown, who gave a verse on, I've got it here somewhere, Ephesus on forsaken love. We've had Paul Charter on Pergamum, on repenting. And we've had Ange last week on Thyatira and how they tolerated the temptress. I think it was put down. So um, I'm actually here the next two weeks. So you've got the pleasure, shall I say, of myself the next two weeks. Next week, I'm going to talk about Philadelphia, which was a church of brotherly love. And that's carried on um, over the last couple of thousand years. Philadelphia has recognized that as how it, was, how it started in that church in Philadelphia. Um, and that sermon's on patience. So you'll have to wait till next week <laughs> and display some patience. Um, but today, I'm going to talk about Sardis. The Dead Church. Um, the first song that we did um, this morning had the line, Spirit of the living God, come fall afresh on me. Come wake me from my sleep. And I think that's quite apt for what we're talking about today. Come wake me from my sleep. Um, it's really asking God that at times we're all guilty of it. We're all guilty of sort of falling back into a little bit of a slumber. Um, and as a bit of a summary, that's, I think, what happened to Sardis. They had become a bit of a dead church. So I'm going to look at Sardis today. Jesus was quite direct in what he said about their deeds. He wasn't saying that their deeds themselves were wrong, but they were certainly incomplete. They were unfinished, and we'll go through that in a bit more detail. And the outward appearance that they had was maybe very good in Sardis and in the surrounding area. They were well recognized, but Jesus was much more direct. He felt that they were a dead church, and it's not a way any of us would like to be described, to be dead inside or to be dead spiritually. Or in the middle of an argument, you're dead to me. It's not exactly the words one wants to hear. So I'm sure it was quite hard-hitting when they got that. Um, I'll run through the agenda quickly now. I'll go through a little bit of a background and intro just to the churches as a whole. Um, so for any of you that haven't been here the last three weeks, I'll just repeat the last three sermons we've had word for word. <laughs> so we'll go through Sardis and the church in general. Um, and as I sort of alluded to in the last slide, their perception that they had from earth as opposed to the reality that God or Jesus saw, um, pride and humility, uh, the act of believing, and what we just talked about at the start of it, listening to God's truth as well. Um, and all of these can be gleaned from six short verses in Revelations chapter 3. Um, who here writes letters? Who here likes to write letters and doesn't just do short texts? Does anyone still write letters? A few people guilty of it? And when we write letters, I know, I'll not go through and ask you to prove a concept, but certainly whenever I write letters, even whenever I write Mandy a card for her birthday or whatever, I normally write a lot of cheesy nonsense in it and waffle throughout the card and little poems and little ditties that rhyme together. And to be honest, I probably write more in that card to Mandy um, than the six short verses to Sardis. Um, likewise, my dad's a great one for writing letters. 
He's often wrote me letters in the past, sometimes not too positive about my actions and whatever in, in my younger days, shall we say. Um, but yeah, he would tend to write sort of four or six page letters. I've done the same as well when I've had challenging things in life and I want to maybe get my thoughts out. And maybe if we were to write a letter to our family or friends or church and we were maybe trying to address something and maybe look for an opportunity for improvement, um, we would probably write a, a sort of bit of background, go through it, give some examples um, and go through it in a, a, a bit of detail. Um, if I was writing a letter to a church, I probably wouldn't just do six verses. But Jesus' letter to all the churches were six, seven, eight, nine, ten verses. They were each very succinct. They were to the point. But critically, I think, each of the churches would have known exactly what he was referring to. It would have, if they didn't know it already, it would have hit them right there in the heart and they would have said, actually, he's got a point. Um, Paul argued to be the best biblical writer, or one of the best biblical writers, who was obviously famous for many letters to many churches, Colossians, Galatians, Romans, Thessalonians, um, wrote long letters to each of those churches, chapter after chapter, verses across a whole multitude of topics. Um, but of course, those letters were really going through a whole range of things. Jesus' letters wanted to focus on one specific thing. It may have focused on, yes, you're doing this well, but here is an opportunity that I want you to address. Um, so I'm going to cover six verses, and I'm going to try and do it not too long. Um, I'm just going to run through the intro. Paul did this as well, so apologies for those of you who were here a couple of weeks ago. I'm going to start with the introduction um, to Revelations chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. And then I'm going to digress a little bit as well. So, um, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood. So that was really the introduction. We've covered that before, for, but for those of you who want to hear, it might be quite useful. Um, the only reason I really did that was looking back at it and the start of the verses I'll be going through also talks about the seven spirits um, and talks really about the number seven. And it's used a lot in the Bible and it seems to have a lot of significance. So I just wanted to um, digress a little bit and talk about the number seven and where it's used in the Bible. Um, seventh day, the first time it was used was when we had finished creation. So that was a good opportunity to get it in. And really that was referring to completion. The next one, um, and I should actually say, actually, it's used in the Bible. It's not just seven times. I've given seven examples because I thought that was quite apt. Um, but it's used, I was having a look at how many times the word seven was used, the word 70, the word sevenfold, the word seventh time. Um, I think it's around 800 times it's used in the Bible. So it is one of the words or one of the numbers that's used the most. Um, and it is really, a lot of it does, does refer to completeness. So the next one was the rainbow, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet, the seven colors of the rainbow, and that was completeness after the flood. Um, forgiveness. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times. And Jesus answered, I tell you, not just seven times, but 70 times, seven times. And again, that isn't just to multiply it out or to 70 times 70, uh, 70 times seven, but it is completeness. You should continually forgive your brother Sometimes that could be for one instance, you may need to re-forgive, or that could be your brother that sins against you multiple times, you need to re-forgive or forgive each one of those occasions. In Matthew, there are seven parables referred to, this parable of the sower, tares or weeds, mustard, seed, uh, the leaven, hidden treasure, pearl, and drawing in of the net. 
Joshua marched around Jericho seven days, and on the seventh day, on the seven times, specifically on the seventh day, and the trumpet blew seven times. And then we move on then to Revelations, but specifically the seven spirits, which is again, it's what we referred to. We had the spirit of God or of the Lord with the spirit of counsel, wisdom, understanding, knowledge, strength, and the spirit of the fear of God. And they're all referred to in Isaiah 11 verses 1 to 2. So when we're referring to that, that it was, I thought, well, it was useful for me to go back and see what these seven spirits were. And of course, then in Revelations itself, we talk about the seven churches and the seven letters to the seven churches. So I just thought it was interesting. It generally refers to the completeness. So going on to the passage we've got today, Revelations 3 verses 1 to 6. And you'll have the opportunity, actually, I'll be going through this twice. I'll be going through it in completeness now, and then I'll go through each verse in turn. Um, to the church in Sardis, to the angel of the church in Sardis write, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but I will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So it's a very far, powerful message that has been summed up in just six verses. So as a little bit of background on Sardis, we've done it the last three weeks, so I can't get away with it. I'll have to give a little bit of background on Sardis. Um, so Sardis is positioned there. Now that's now Turkey, um, and it's positioned along with those seven churches. They all seem relatively close together, but they're really a few hundred miles apart. And I suppose in that time, um, people would have been located in Sardis, and they wouldn't really have moved around towns as much as they would do now. They may have had the opportunity at some stage to visit some of the other locations, but they would have been much more rooted in the community than maybe we are now. So Sardis was in Asia Minor, um, which is now Turkey, and it hasn't existed for the last 600 years, since around the year 1400. Um, I'll have a few other images of Sardis, but they'll produce one image. That's the Mount Timulus. Apologies, I haven't pronounced that right. Um, but the background of Sardis was that it was a very old city even at that time, and it was one of the most important cities of Asia Minor. And until 549 BC, it was the capital of the kingdom of Lydia. It stood on the northern slope of the Mount Timulus, as you can see there, and it had a river which surrounded it, the river Pactolus. And it rendered the city a very secure city. It was very secure in its foundations. Um, it was a strong city, and it was well guarded. However, it was taken over on a few occasions. I'll give an example of a couple of occasions. In 549 BC, by the Midians or the Persians, we were able to take it over, and by 218 BC, by the Cretans or the Greeks, the city was in, uh, taken over by an invading army. Um, and this initially happened from one single soldier on both these occasions who infiltrated the city at night and was able to open it up to the invading army. So, it, aside from that... It was also taken over by Alexander the Great in about 300 BC. Um, it had other takeovers, and near 17 AD, there was an earthquake um, where uh, the, the city was 
predominantly destroyed, and the Roman emperor at the time, Tiberius, um, basically took away the taxes of the people, which I think happened in a couple of the other churches, in order to give them an opportunity to rebuild the city, but in his honor. And that's what the citizens do. But it never quite recovered its former importance after that. Um, but it was still regarded as a city of great prosper and a city with a very rich history. So the first verse. Can I right, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, these, doesn't come off here. So these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds, you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. So as I mentioned before, it's shown a great light as the capital of Lydia, but it had been in decline. But its history did make it very significant. It was very well recognized. And it was very well recognized among man. You had a reputation of being alive. There's many churches that have reputations of being alive. That's not a bad thing to have a reputation of being alive. But if that comes at the expense of the reputation of God, then perhaps that is a bad thing. But certainly its name preceded them. Um, but clearly it had some challenges. So what is the church? It's not just the building, but the biblical word church comes from the Greek word ecclesia, which means an assembly or called out once. So church is the people within the church, not just the building. So in the first and second century, there were other churches with other buildings in Sardis. Um, there was a building or a temple that was dedicated to Diana or Artemis, which was the Roman goddess, the daughter of Zeus. There was a synagogue for the Jews, and there was a church of Sardis as well. So it was a community of people. Romans 16 verse 5 says, Greet the church that is in their house. So Paul refers to the church as a house, uh, sorry, as it refers to the church in their house, not as a church building, but as the body of believers. So the church of Sardis was really part of the whole community. The people of Sardis, the Christian community of Sardis, were part of the whole community of people. So it was well regarded in church in Sardis, it was well regarded internally, and it was well regarded probably externally. It had a reputation. The next slide, me, 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 me. Um, I was going to have a short video here. A lot of you have probably seen the video anyway. It's been shared quite a bit on Facebook and YouTube and things like that. Um, but I don't think it works, so I'll, I'll just talk around it. I won't do all the actions, but um, it sort of shows us a bit of uh, focus about how we can be very self-absorbed. Um, it's not a new thing. In fact, probably now it's maybe a little bit more prevalent. Um, but we can often check our phone, and we can focus on our phone. We can walk along, and there's a video that shows on YouTube of people walking along to their phone, walking into fountains, walking into walls, walking out in the face of oncoming cars and traffic. And often you look at this and you, you sort of laugh and think that's quite funny, it's hilarious, uh, as we're watching the video and walking along and hitting something ourselves. <laughs> so, um, but there's a hard-hitting message to it as well, not just that. There's a hard-hitting message of how we also can display ourselves, how we're very focused um, in getting likes on Facebook. And, you know, we've put some photos on over the last couple of days. Thank you for anyone that liked them. It gives me a warm feeling inside. I feel a bit fuzzy. So, um, But we want to have that self-approval from others, from man. It's nice to have that. We like to see what's going on. We like to be nosy and what's happening in everyone else's life and things like that. It's nice to see that. That doesn't necessarily mean that's wrong, but that should not be at the expense of what's happening in reality in our life. The video I was going to show had an image of someone who was living in a life of a bit of misery, but when she was taking the photo for Facebook, it was a bright smile, all done up, and then goes back into the life and the real misery. 
We've seen that in Mental Health Awareness Week of how, what, what is happening in people's mind, how they hide things. We see the tragedies that happen to people when maybe they do something that's wrong or maybe people that have been resorted to attempting suicide or going through it with it. They maybe hide that from other people and their perception that they're giving off is very different. So not just are they hiding it, but also us. We need to be aware of that and we need to be maybe be trying to show more intuition or more empathy to others as well. Um, and I'm sure there's a, there's a bit of a keeping up appearances as well. We try and keep up with the Joneses. It's nice. I, my old boss at my last job, he used to say about his wife, she would be going on to Facebook and she'd be saying, oh, person Bob has taken his wife off on holiday. They're off to Paris. When are you going to take me on holiday? And then the following week she'd be saying, Mal's taking Mandy off here. When are you going to take me on holiday? And he would be saying, no, but every week you're going to look and you're going to see a new person is going to be taking someone off on holiday. We can't do it every week. So um, she so used to be saying, oh, she, every time she's on Facebook, she will talk about someone being off on holiday. And it's true. We, we will look and we will look at other people's lives and say, oh, look at what they're doing. They're having a lovely time. They've gone off there. But in reality, we don't tend to share those moments where we're just sitting around on the sofa, lazing out, eating tortilla chips and Vegging out those aren't the movie. I don't share that anyway. Maybe others do. So apologies if you all share that. I maybe missed that. So, um, but that's that. The perception is that the the reality that we give off is probably a heightened reality. It's probably a more exciting reality than than the truth of our life in general. Um, now, the the truth is we don't know exactly the detail of Saurus. What was Saurus's reality? Um, perhaps that wasn't it. But I sort of have an impression that they give off a, probably a better reality. Um, than what it was. Maybe their marketing team was very good in terms of how they portrayed themselves. Um, now, I'm not saying as well that Sardis... Um, I'm not saying as well that they had a life of misery. I give the example of, of someone maybe having a sort of life of misery. I actually think it probably wasn't that. I think they probably were quite happy in their way. I think they were quite happy with how things were going. They had a good reputation. They were probably quite proud of it. And that's where I'm going to come on to on the next slide. The pride of Christians. Um, pious Christians as well. Christians, some Christians can be quite pious. Maybe That's maybe why I've got Christians in inverted commas there. Um, C.S. Lewis, my compatriot from Northern Ireland, um, maybe perhaps more famous for the Chronicles of Narnia, but I mean, I'm sure many of you know that he's also famous for a lot of his Christian texts. He wrote 40 Christian texts and books um, and I've picked up a couple of quotes that he talked about, which maybe could be related to sort of pride or how we can be preoccupied with ourselves. There have been some who were so preoccupied with spreading Christianity that they never give a thought to Christ. Um, and the th second one, we must show our Christian colors if we are to be true to Jesus Christ. Um, and is that what Saurus were guilty of? Perhaps they were very good at maybe one aspect of it. They're very good at worshiping and getting a joyful occasion and um, but maybe less good at actually giving the message that Jesus wanted them to give. Um, Rob's talks with us at the start of the year, living at the living at sermon was very good in terms of actually living life in the way Jesus wants us to live and actually listening and moving forward for that. Um, another verse from Galatians chapter 1 verse 10, am I trying to win the approval of human beings or of God or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. So I'll digress a bit again. Example, Britney Spears. And I use Britney Spears as well because actually she said, um, this was actually something that she shared. She shared a number of images of Britney Spears and how her image had been shared in a magazine. 
and then she gave the reality of the image as it actually was. Now, it's not hugely different, I will say that. Maybe, maybe she touched it up a little bit herself. But the face had been slimmed in a little bit. The, some of the blemishes had been removed. And Brittany was sort of sharing it to her fans on Instagram or whatever it is. I'm not, I'm not on Instagram, so I don't really know. But, um, but she'd actually shared it to sort of say, actually, people don't really look at the images of me or of other models or of other celebrities and think you have to match up to this. Because even with us, when you've got us in covers, they actually touch up the, the images of us as well. And are we guilty of that? The next one, Facebook. Now, my wife doesn't know I'm going to do this, so maybe I shouldn't. <laughs> but but yeah, yesterday, um, and when we do put images and things like that on Facebook, um, Mandy will say, well, I don't, I don't like that image or whatever. Or, Can you cut that little bit out or maybe crop the photo? And we maybe do sometimes things like that. And I'm guilty of it as well. I'll go through photos whenever I'm sharing photos, and I did the same thing, so it's not just Mandy, but I'll go through and I'll pick out the best photos that we share whenever we're sharing photos on Facebook. We'll bin a few, and we'll share, oh, I like that one, I don't look quite as fat in that one. I've only got two chins, not three, so we'll share that one. <laughs> so, um, and likewise, and I referred to it earlier, the next one is, what do we share about our life on Facebook? We sort of share the more exciting aspects of our life on Facebook, and not when we're just venting out. And the next one I just thought was quite funny as well. Um, you see this image of someone when you've got, oh, well, she's showing off quite a bit there. And actually, it's just her knees. So <laughs> it's not actually showing off anything at all. So, <laughs> so the aspect of this, really, in the relation to Sardis, is Sardis's reputation and its perception was very different. Too many buttons to press. Very different to the reality. The Church of Sardis itself was popular. It was in a prosperous area. It was alive. It was well regarded. Its reputation preceded it. It was talked about well. But what did it really achieve? In my work, we like to talk about how, what certain projects are doing. What's this project doing? How, what's it achieving? And things like that. Now, we could all talk about what it wants to do and what, it's, what it was talked about and doing in its bid and things like that. But talk, talk, talk. What's the actual action and what has it achieved? And that's where we try and focus. And I think with Starless, they talked about the deeds but the reality was they weren't achieving much in the end goal. Jesus doesn't look at our marketing material. He doesn't focus on how we perform on Sunday. He doesn't focus purely on what we talk about. He focuses on what our actions are and who we are inside and who we are day in, day out. And that is how we will be judged. Another couple of verses just to give an example of these. Philippians 2 verse 3, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. And Galatians 6, verses 1 to 3. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. So I think going back to Sardis, the message is clear that their deeds... Perhaps pride got in the way of doing the deeds that God wanted them to do. So verse 2, all still here. Revelation 3 verse 2, Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. So it starts, wake up. The verse starts with wake up, and I'll talk about that as it comes into the next verse as well. But clearly their churches and their bodies were asleep spiritually. 
One thing to note here, I think, is when the church, that we referred to the deeds as being unfinished. Jesus isn't saying that their deeds were wrong. He didn't say, I do not like the deeds you were doing. He's saying they're unfinished. So it may be that the actions that they were doing were good in terms of thought. They were good in terms of, well, the idea was maybe, and the concept was good, but they weren't completing them. Perhaps they had a food bank and they were reaching out to people um, in the equivalent on, in Sardis and they were trying to help some people, but they weren't actually bringing them to salvation. They weren't actually encouraged people to actually make a difference in their lives in terms of their spiritual life. They were feeding them physically, but they weren't feeding them spiritually. I myself can hold my hands up in terms of, we've got this slide, the thing at the back and the cat course. The first year we did a few cat courses. Last year we did one or two. This year we haven't done any of it. So could I say that those deeds are complete? We can't say that. We can, I can have excuses, um, but we haven't done much, and it's certainly become inactive. Um, so there's certainly things that we can look at ourselves and say, what can we do more? What can we do more in terms of our acts? Or is it something that uh, Jesus wants us to do something different? Perhaps they preached, but their services were maybe very religious, very virtuous. Um, we don't know. Um, but maybe it wasn't encouraging people to come along. Maybe they were just preaching to the same people. Um, in terms of, um, I mentioned in my work, I talked about objectives and achieving things. Um, we often call it, and maybe some of you heard the phrase, phrase completer finishers, and how we put people into certain categories um, where the completer finishers, I don't think they were in that church. So, one of the things that Hazel said this morning as well in the intro um, is that we should be like a close family. So we should share things with each other uh, and we shouldn't be afraid to share things. So if we've got challenges, we should be open with each other and say, this is what's going on with me and be able to share that where we can then deal with it. Not just share the nice things, not just sort of talk about how things are great, because sometimes they're not. They're not always great. So I... When I was praying about it, I got this sort of impression that perhaps there was a bit of, not Pharisees themselves, um, but perhaps they were maybe giving a sort of more of a sort of proud moment in terms of being like the Pharisees. So the next passage I've got, um, from John 12, verse 42 to 43, Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed him in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. The Pharisees were clearly very religious people. In the time of Jesus being on earth in his uh, human form, the Pharisees were the main um, leaders of the Judaism. And that continued to be so. And in terms of the, um, sort of the, the change in Judaism in 70 AD, it became more of the, sort of the way the Pharisees wanted it. But Jesus was certainly not slow to criticize them and for their pride and how their outward appearance was more important than their inside appearance. They clearly followed religion, but they, did they follow God himself and what they wanted them to do and the ways of Jesus? And with Rob's sermon from early in the year, were they living it? Were they living life to be more like Jesus? And just a couple of images really of how the Pharisees portrayed themselves. Jesus mentioned about how they prayed out in the open and liked people to look at them. Very different to how Jesus wanted us to be. And of course, Jesus himself compared this to Jesus and his humility. Jesus, of course, he did go out there. He did preach. He had the parables. He talked often. Um, the Sermon on the Mount. Much of his time was spent preaching and talking to people. But it was just talking to everyone. He talked. It doesn't matter what your creed was. It didn't matter who you were. He had the parable of the Samaritan. Um, he met with prostitutes, tax collectors of the day. 
He talked with all and also t spent time making actions. Didn't matter that it was a Sabbath, he would perform miracles. He demonstrated his humanity, he demonstrated his love for mankind, and he demonstrated completeness in the miracles that he performed in his time on earth. And as I mentioned, he, was, he wasn't slow in being critical to the Pharisees. Going into a few verses in Matthew chapter 23, verses 25 to 28, and actually there's a lot more verses, but where it basically starts with the same thing and then goes on to criticize something. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgent. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. And just a couple of things really to pull out there. The outside of the cup and dish um, really refers to that Jesus was saying, them, saying to them, on the outside, your reputation is good, but on the inside, not so much. The whitewashed tombs as well, beautiful in the, out, in the outside, but metaphorically speaking, not so beautiful in the inside. And that's where I relate that to Sardis and how they were inside. So moving on, Revelations 3, verse 3. Therefore, Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come. So again, we had the phrase in the last verse, and it's in this verse again. Wake up. The phrase wake up means to be watchful, to be awake, and to prevent yourself from falling asleep spiritually, or as the body of the people representing the church for God falling asleep in our way of how we deal with ourselves in the church and our outreach. So when I give the background of Saurus, may I recall that Saurus had been invaded on a couple of occasions. It was invaded in 549 BC by the Midians and 218 BC by the Cretans. And on both those occasions, it was invaded at night while the city slept. It was invaded as well by one person. And that then started the whole invading army. Jesus referred that he will come like a thief. And you will not know when I come to you at what time. That, I think, would have been a message that the people of Sardis would have recognized. And that was why it was pertinent to them. And that's why the message went there. It's not an isolated message as well in the Bible. It is referred to in a few other occasions. It's actually referred to a few times in Revelations that he will come like a thief in the night and that others will not know when he comes. It is a call from Jesus. It was a call from Jesus for Sardis at that time. And it was a call... To us now as a church and all churches and as a call throughout history that we should all be awake at all times, spiritually awake, because we do not know the time that Jesus will come. Just uh, another example from Thessalonians 5 verses 1 to 3. Now brothers and sisters, about times and dates we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains in a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. So as I mentioned, it happens on a few occasions. Uh, and that was just one other example. Pick out. Uh, Revelations 3 verses 4 and 5. Two together this time. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white. For they are worthy. The one who is victorious will like them be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life but will acknowledge that name before my Father 
and his angels. So it's a, it's a sort of twofold message on this one, that there were some people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. Clearly a positive message for the most people. But just thinking about those who have soiled their clothes, those that were claiming to be Christians but maybe were still living in sin, those that were going to the church in Sardis, um, but not living it, those that were going to the church in Sardis and maybe just putting on a show to be part of the community, to be well regarded in the community. Perhaps they were never saved at all, in which case the church of Sardis was not doing a good job in terms of bringing people to Christ. Or perhaps they were saved, but maybe they'd moved away from salvation, in which case the church was certainly not moving people away from the truth and they weren't listening to what God was saying. Perhaps it was just a church where people went to feel good about themselves. Perhaps they just went for the social occasion. But on the more positive side, for those who had not soiled their clothes, I will not erase their name from the book of life. That's a wonderful promise for those people to overcome. But for those who hadn't overcome that side, it's a bit of a double-edged sword that they could be removed from the book of life. How many people in Sardis had their names erased from the book of life. From the way that this verse, these verses are written, you have a few people in Sardis. I would take that to mean that most of the people in Sardis had had their names removed from the book of life. Now, we tend to go by the theory, and I think most of it would believe, that if you believe in Jesus, you're saved. And it's not just through your acts. Um, and I believe that. But there's plenty of verses in the Bible and we'll come on to a verse shortly, where we talk about being, um, we, we talk, where Jesus talks about where people who say that they're saved, but actually he will deny them. Um, and maybe if we move on to the next verse, I might come back to the, that one actually. Um, not everyone who say, will say to me that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? I've jumped ahead a bit. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles. But I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, evildoers. I think if we just go back to the last one again. Um, so the challenge here, I suppose, is the sort of once saved, always saved theory. I think if people completely walk away, maybe they were never saved correctly in the first place or maybe they never believed correctly in the first place. But the message here is a positive one. Those are worthy. They will be acknowledged. They will walk with Jesus. They will be dressed in white. They or we are worthy. And Jesus will acknowledge us in heaven. But really, if we jump ahead two slides, I want it then to focus on belief. And this is where, as I say, this is where my message changed a little bit from praying and asking for bit of guidance. What does it really mean to believe and have faith in God and Jesus? What was different about those who had soiled their clothes as opposed to those who had not soiled their clothes? The Greek word pistou means strength of belief and commitment. So the word belief there is more of a dedication, more of a commitment and more of a continuation of belief. Looking into again the Latin translation of the Bible it doesn't use faith in just one example. It uses faith in a couple of times, in different times it uses it. Faith was described as essentia and fiducia. Essentia is sort of where you accept the belief. And that's where I would say I was as a child and 
in my younger years, did I believe in God? Yeah, I sort of believed in God. But looking back, would I call myself a Christian at that time? No, I wouldn't call myself a Christian. But if someone had asked me then, at maybe the age of 20, were you a Christian? I would probably say, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I believe in God. Um, but actually, I, my belief then was essentially, I didn't believe and take God, take Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I sort of believed in the concept of Christianity. And it was more of a kind of household belief, I suppose, that I'd been brought up that way. I went to church and had that sort of belief. But for me, looking back at that time, it was just a very light belief. And it wasn't taking Lord and saying, you are my Lord and Savior, and whatever your will of me will be done, and I will act in the way you want me to do. The devil, for example, acknowledges that God exists, and there's plenty of others that acknowledge that God exists. But that's not the belief. The fiducia belief, and what faith and that refers to, is a stronger trusting faith in God. It's full faith in Jesus as Lord and his resurrection from the cross. It is fiducia that Christians are supposed to possess. We are to have a faithful, independent trust in the work of Christ upon the cross who cleanses from our sins. It's not just a mental acknowledgement that he lived and died. We not only believe that, but we also trust in his sacrifice on the cross. What he did on that cross, his commitment on earth, and that we will commit to him and we will act and listen to what he wants us to do as part of our belief. We need to believe in Jesus and have a relationship with Jesus. So were most of the assembly of Saurus just of essentia belief or maybe had no belief? Redemption then. So for those that had the joys, for those that overcame, they were born again. Everyone that is born of God overcomes the world. And this is a victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes in Jesus, the Son of God. 1 John verses, uh, chapter 5, verse 4. So they will be with Jesus. Those that hadn't soiled their clothes will be with Jesus in heaven. And he will call us by our name. The angels will rejoice. So there is redemption for us. Um, after um, this was written, there the continued to be a church in Sardis after this. And it was overseen by the Bishop Melito, who died in 170 AD. So perhaps they did wake up after this. And perhaps more had their names in the Book of Life. The Bishop Melito was one of the first to canonize the Old Testament. The white garments that they had represented righteousness and the names never been removed from the book of life. So they were eternally safe. And they will be with Jesus in heaven. So there really is a positive message that if you do listen, if for those in Saurus listened to Jesus' message at that time, they had the opportunity for redemption. Um, and the last verse, Revelation 3, verse 6, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This exact text of this verse appears in each of the seven letters. So what Paul handed out a couple of weeks ago, it was interesting to note the, the end message was the same to each of the seven churches. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the church. So Rob, you've now got your hearing. No excuse. You can listen and hear everything. Um, but what does it mean to listen, to hear? I think we've probably covered that a little bit. But the, word, the Hebrew word for listen is shima. And that shima is more powerful than just to listen. It means to listen and to act, and to do. And I've got a couple of verses I'll show you as we round up. Um, but it's a conscious effort to listen. It's to be active in acknowledging what God is saying, and it's to respond to the call. And that's what Shema means. Um, it's interesting to notice that if you just click very quickly, the English words for listen and silent have the same letters. S-I-L-E 
NT. Some of you may have seen that before. And I think when we pray and when we talk to God, when we ask things from God and we ask for things, we can often pray and finish our prayer and move on. Maybe take that time when we finish the prayer just to have silence. Maybe we'll have a message from God that will come through or maybe just have time to be quiet. If we maybe feel that we don't need to pray, just be quiet in God's company and listen. And I'll just give a few other examples from James and Luke. Um, listening to God. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. James 1 verse 19. Next one, a few verses on in James. Um, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And in Luke 11 verse 28, he replied, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God on a bed. Um, there is plenty of examples if you ever want to Google it. Google listen and Bible verses. There is 50, 100 examples, maybe more. Um, and these examples from James and Luke, there's plenty more in the New Testament, plenty in the Old Testament. Um, and pretty much, I'm sure there are exceptions, um, but most of them that I was looking at, the verses on hearing the word of God are followed by the words obey, act upon, follow, pay attention to, open the door, etc., etc. So it's not just about listening, as I mentioned before, but do we take the time to listen? And when we get the answer from God, is it the answer we want to hear? If it is the answer we want to hear, then great, we probably act on that. If it's not the answer we want to hear, do we follow man's approval or do we follow God's approval and what do we act on? So I'm just going to summarize. Today, the church, we talked about the church, it's an assembly of people, so it wasn't just a message for the, the leaders of the church. It was a message for all of the church, for all people of the assembly. We should seek the approval of God rather than the approval of earth. And what is our reality? What's the perception we go off and how does that differ from our reality? Being humble and not just looking to be pride and selecting the best moments. And we talked about belief and what that belief means, dedicated and comprehensive belief. And finally, about listening, not just about listening to God's truth, but acting on God's truth as well. So I'm going to close it there today. Thank you very much for listening. Um, my call today, and maybe I'll close with a, a prayer, but if anyone would like to come up for prayer today, if any of these messages have maybe touched you, maybe there's a perception of your life that you give out, but you've got reality, you've got something that's been burning down inside and maybe you want to get it off your chest? Are you seeking the approval of man higher than the approval of God? Or is there a belief that you're struggling with? Would you like to talk about that? Plenty of people here would like to pray for you.